I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind threebrothersfilm.com have substantial, nuanced conversations about film. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Anton. My last name is the same as my brother's. And we're putting on our diamond-studded jumpsuits and hitting the Vegas stage to talk about Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. We'll also extend the conversation to discuss musical biopics in general and the film's place in the much-derided genre. As always, thank you for listening. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating review to help grow the show, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as read our written work at threebrothersfilm.com. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon with a one-time donation, which helps us afford the cost of producing the show and maintaining the website. But now, on to the show. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. Baz Luhrmann is not a director known for restraint. Ever since he burst onto the global film scene with his melodramatic tale of ballroom dancing, Strictly Ballroom, in 1992, and followed that up with his hyperactive take on Romeo and Juliet in 1996, he's been synonymous with cinematic excess. Fast cuts, fast line readings, pop music needle drops, anachronistic storytelling choices, characters pouring their hearts out at top volume, and a storytelling pace that's liable to give you a heart attack. So it's no surprise that Lerman would be drawn to the story of Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, whose meteoric rise and early death continues to define excess for show business, even today. In the film, which stars Austin Butler as Elvis, you might remember him as the cowboy hat-wearing, knife-toting member of the Manson family, Tex, from Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Tom Hanks as Elvis's infamous manager, Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis tells the entire story of Elvis's life from his childhood years growing up in the black neighborhood of Tupelo, Mississippi, to his untimely death from drug abuse at age 42. The film tries to capture the essence of Elvis's life and career. We get his rise to stardom on the country-western radio circuit, his public battles with the censorship boards, his getting drafted and sent to West Germany, his career as a Hollywood actor, his decline into non-relevance, his return to stardom with his installment in Las Vegas as the hottest show in town at the brand new Las Vegas International Hotel, and his struggles with amphetamines and alcohol. Perhaps most interestingly, we also get many moments chronicling Elvis's complicated relationship to black music, and his admiration for black American artists, as well as his appropriation of their musical and performance styles. The story is mostly presented in chronological order, with the occasional detours and jumps through time, all edited at breakneck pace. Lerman's camera flies around Las Vegas, zooms into billboard signs, television screens, and bridges the temporal gaps between his massive stage shows and his time in small black bars in Memphis. It's a rush, and exhausting, although shockingly easy to follow despite the surplus of information, both sensory and biographical, that's being offered at every moment of the film. The film runs an epic 2 hours and 39 minutes, and is a savvy demonstration of Lerman's skill at crafting comprehensible chaos. Lerman's approach is excessive and cliched, 
it's happy to lean into conventions about the genre, even as it amplifies and extends them, using the modes of musical biopic storytelling to show how Elvis himself created these very conventions in his life. In essence, the film becomes a statement on how Elvis's life is the template for the Hollywood musical drama. Life imitates art, imitates life. This gleeful approach to musical biopic convention, with the greatest hits treatment of the subject's biography, is one of the film's most contentious elements, with some critics loving the pastiche approach, while others bemoaning the use of formula. But I say it's only one of the most contentious parts of the film because Hanks' performance as Colonel Parker is unquestionably the film's most divisive element. Layered with prosthetics to make him look like the Penguin from Batman stories, speaking with a heavy Dutch accent, Colonel Parker is as much cartoon as human here. He's a fiendish villain, a clever businessman, and a degenerate liar and manipulator. He's the film's narrator, and Lerman's decision to present Elvis' story through the eyes of Parker creates a fascinating artistic tension. It turns Parker into both trickster and confidant, abuser and advisor, and for the audience, unreliable narrator and informed insider. He's seen it all, he knows the story, but are we supposed to believe him? If Hanks' performance and the characterization of Colonel Parker is the film's biggest question mark, its most undeniable bright spot has to be Austin Butler as Elvis himself, who channels the king in affect and voice, and especially movement in such an uncanny way that it makes the accolades for mediocre musical biopic performances such as Rami Malek's Oscar-winning turn as Freddie Mercury look truly embarrassing. Butler is sensational. The first time we see him shimmy and shake and gyrate his way across the stage, igniting the libidos of the women in the audience, is electric. The film proves Butler's a star. So perhaps let's use the performances as the way into the film. Um, Anders, what did you think of Elvis? And is Austin Butler's performance as Elvis Presley a star-making turn? I am the big fan of Baz Luhrmann. So I probably went into the film with a more favorable anticipation than most people. But the reality is, as you say, that Austin Butler is the, uh, the star of this film, even more than even Lerman, who um, is, obviously puts his mark in this film. And I, I want to talk more about Ler how this is a Lerman film, but Austin Butler shocked me. He's actually, I, I think he's so good that, like, again, like I said, it's, it's a shame that so many actors have won awards and accolades for essentially putting in these performances of real people because like this is the one case where I'm like yeah this is the one you should give it to this is this is one it's such a a gutsy performance too because to take on Elvis who has been imitated parodied become such a caricature of himself over the years like literally there's an entire uh, genre of people who make a living as Elvis impersonators yeah. and yet yeah. Butler it never feels like he's putting on a, a, you know, a cartoon Elvis suit, he is making the character his own, in a sense. I, you know, I, I might even go so far as to say that, you know, going back and watching a few clips of Elvis and even at the end of the film, the, the real footage they use and things, I might say that Butler, in some ways, is perhaps even more pretty and more compelling than Elvis was as a man himself. Like, Lerman really also, the camera really soaks in Austin Butler and really tries to sell that why this guy, why Elvis Presley became like the first true like superstar of pop music in the fifties, and um, so you know I have to give both Lerman and Butler together like huge props for pulling this off. Just even you know isolating that performance, whatever one thinks of the rest of the film, the editing, the other performances, and all that. 
it alone as a sort of uh, performance, it's amazing. And, you know, you know, Aaron, as you mentioned in the, in the keynote that, you know, I think when I, you know, first saw the trailer for the film, I was like, who is this Austin Butler guy? And you're like, I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. And you're like, no, that's text from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was like, what? <laughs> like, and it truly is a transformative yeah. performance. And, but at the same time, it does make me curious to see what Butler does next, even if this it's hard to believe that anyone would top a sort of like a role this big and over and over the top. And yet he imbues it with the real like pathos. And uh, you, you feel sorry for the guy, even as you realize that Elvis had tons of flaws as, as a person. Do you know what he's doing next, right? No, no. He's Fade Rautha in Dune 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. That's <laughs> because great it's cast. the idea yeah. of the pretty boy evil version of yeah. Paul. <laughs> no, that'll that's be actually perfect. a great. Yeah. That's actually a great follow up. Yeah. Uh, casting. So, um, Anton, like, let's hear your thoughts. Like, what did you think about Butler? Do you agree with Anders? And I'm also curious what you think about Tom Hanks specifically, because I feel like a lot of the talk online is that even if Butler is given an all-time great musical biopic performance, uh, Tom Hanks might be given an all-time bad one. <laughs> so, I like that Anders points out that Butler is not giving us a cartoonish Elvis. He's He doesn't he doesn't, uh, he's very far from any sort of Elvis impersonator, and yet he still uh, seems like he's Elvis, which is, which is a great combination. Um, and it, I, I think Anders, um, it is kind of sort of interesting that a lot of these biopics, musical biopics, we've actually had some great performances. Like, I actually would say I think that Joaquin Phoenix did a great job as Johnny Cash. I think um, in Ray... Uh, Jamie Foxx was also a great performance. Uh, that was the best part of that movie. Um, I, I I didn't see Bohemian Rhapsody, and every clip I saw, uh, <laughs> they I, just well, gave him these giant fake teeth, which yeah. made him like struggle through it. <laughs> but so that seemed cartoonish. Whereas here, the you know the makeup that Elvis has on here is actually part of like the Elvis thing. Like he he was wearing the makeup um, because he's trying to sell you know his sex appeal on one side. Um, but it's interesting contrast because as much as Butler is not a cartoon, Tom Hanks is a cartoon. And <laughs> when the movie started and you get these like crazy shots zooming around, <laughs> zooming around, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I'm like laughing, talking about it, zooming around Las Vegas. And then, like, with his weird voice over, t- like with yeah. the... Tom Hanks walking oh, around, uh, you know, in his uh, hospital gown, saying, I'm going to tell you the real story. And yeah. I get the slot machine, and then we, like, zoom into Come his eyeball. Come a closer, my friend. I'll tell you the story. Yeah. At least it lives up to, like, every every Baz Luhrmann movie has to start off kind of berserk, right? Like, yeah. just insane. Before it settles. So it, yeah. Before it settles. But, it, but, but so it does that. But, you know, I was, like, I was not settling into Tom Hanks' performance Especially early on, I was like, "What? what like, why, what's his voice?" I didn't know he was supposed to be Dutch. I had, I didn't know if he was supposed to be like you know Krakosian, like his character in the Terminal. <laughs> <sighs> uh, Tom Hanks so, should like, stay away from doing Eastern European or, or European accents in general, I guess. But but with some distance, it's been about like a week since I saw the movie. I actually think um, I'm still not uh, defending every aspect of the performance, but I actually think. Like, I think he could have toned down some of the cartoonish aspects, particularly the accent. But I actually think there's something about him being kind of this, like, cartoonish villain that adds to the whole the whole approach of the film, which is mediated through this guy's version, this, like, you know, this showman's version of Elvis. 
So right away, by having this sort of cartoonish type character telling the story, um, Lerman's setting up that this isn't like um, this isn't like a documentarian biopic. It's not realism, right? And and so maybe the one redeeming thing I can say about Ray Tom Hanks's performance is that right away it lets us know that this is not. This, this film is not going for realism. It's not trying to be, you know, a cinema verite, like, style biopic where we're just sort of flies on the wall watching things. It's hyper-mediated. And so I think there's aspects of Hanks's performance which help that. I want to let Aaron, I want to get Aaron's thoughts on this in a moment more. But I agree. When, when I came out of the movie, I was much more sour on it. <laughs> Hanks's performance, I was like... I don't know what I just watched. Maybe it was because it was just kind of so bizarre and it didn't even seem like the kind of thing that Tom Hanks normally does. But now I kind of find it partly funny. It is funny. <laughs> like, yeah, like it I makes me laugh. It. It's like genuinely. People were, so he got COVID, right? Like they were filming this right when the pandemic started. And this was when he got COVID in Australia. And the joke people were making is like, oh, COVID fried his brain. <laughs> it just scrambled it and gave him a weird accent. <laughs> when you say that he's a cartoon character, when you say that he's a Batman villain, it actually kind of works because Lerman leans into this in the film. Lerman yeah. says Elvis Presley is not just a musical star. He's an icon of American culture. He says Elvis Presley is like Superman and Mickey Mouse. Yeah. He right? says he's a like superhero. El- he, he says he's he a superhero. And there's the Shazam Captain times. Marvel Jr., yeah. right? The, there's the whole Captain Marvel Jr. thing. He does the comic book art, the wearing the cape and the star. They mentioned multiple times that he yep. has the power of two people within him because, because he is the, death the, of his the twin, right? Like it, it is like the superhero origin story, which is something that uh, Lerman played a little bit with in his the the pilot for the television series The Get Down on mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Netflix, which I'll talk a little bit more when we talk about how this fits into Lerman's uh, explorations of the various aspects of American and particularly black culture, but. Uh, so I thought, like, in the sense, it was like Tom Parker, uh, Colonel Tom, is the, like, villain to Elvis's superhero. And yet at the same time, like the Joker and Batman, like uh, Lex Luthor and Superman, they're intertwined and they can't exist mm-hmm. without each other in a sense. Yeah, yeah, the, I, I am you. You are me. Like, yeah. I created you. Yeah. We are the same, you and I. We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. But it shows it shows that Elvis, at least in, you know, in the movie, it's like Elvis understands that he's doing... Um, he's making a deal with the, the devil. snowman act, right? <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's a deal with the devil. But it's also, and it's also like, you know, like... So this, this gets at, like, one thing I like about this movie so much. And on Twitter, I described this. I was like, you know what? Like, I think this is sort of crazy that, like, this might be the most interesting new release I've seen this year. Um, not any movie I've watched, but new release. Not best, but I found it super interesting because it just, by being so stylized, it actually drew out aspects of the musical biopic, of American pop music, of larger aspects of show business that I hadn't really fully pieced together before. And just to hit the the, the idea was that this whole idea that like um, pop music, is it, it, so it's show business, it had origins in, in the carnival, but it's also a con. It's exploitation as well of mm-hmm. the yeah. person, of the star. Well, it, so, yeah, so it's it's exploitation of the star, like 
akin to the But then show. it's exploitation of a desire on the audience's yeah. part. Yes. I couldn't help but yes. think of uh, Guillermo del Toro's recent remake of Nightmare Alley, right? With the carnival yeah. stuff and the fact that, like, they're pulling one over on the audience. And yet, there's even the you, geek stuff. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, we see in the background, there's the one point where Elvis is sort of walking by the geek show and you see the, the, the poster of it, and I think in silhouette or, like, you know, you the sort of get a sense that it's going yeah. on. Yeah, in silhouette, there's you see silhouette. it going on. But like because I've also been very, um, I think all of us have we we watched the original Nightmare Alley. Aaron, you watched it first, and then recommended it, raved about it to us. Um, I think we we've all seen the the, the Del Toro mm-hmm. one, and then I read the novel that is based on from the nineteen forties, and so I also have this idea because that that book and those movies are also brilliant at showing how like the carnival and the con is like at root of so many aspects of sort of the American pop and show business culture, right? Because Nightmare Alley moves from the carnival to um, show business on sort of Broadway type thing to spiritualism to like these long cons that you're trying to play on people to rob them all their money. But the fact that it's like on some level, yeah, like pop music is not like, yeah, it's exploiting both the performer and then we see all, you know, what happens to all the pop stars today and we see Elvis is like that as Aaron as you said like this template this origin of all that but then also that like how it's exploiting the the emotions that and he links and Colonel Parker links it to right the geek show to things like that he's like that feeling you have where you're not sure if you should be enjoying this and I was like I I don't know if I like it just clarified for me as like so much of the uh what you might describe as sort of like the controlled transgression of pop music all the way back to Elvis going on, which, you know, on people will say it's not truly radical because it's contained within sort of a consumer system, but it, but it's working to activate certain things in people. And there's a sense of like, there's a manipulation going on of the audience and all these things. And I just felt like this movie was brilliant at drawing out all those aspects of, of pop music, of show business. Now I don't know nothing about music, but I could see in that girl's eyes, he was a taste of forbidden fruit. She could have eaten him alive. It's also the the transformation of taking things that are genuine, such as the black music that Elvis deals with, and his own own, um, artistic abilities as Mm -hmm. a singer, as a dancer, as a performer, and turning it into merchandise and turning it into a product yeah. and and like it's 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 the pipeline of american show business right where it's you take the show and it becomes a business and you actually like take the art and the art gets packaged and crunched into this tidy package which Elvis is always pushing and expanding trying to push out the box which is why you get all the scenes fighting with the censorship yeah. which may push too far in the way that Blurman presents it and what like the way that he's trying to create this kind of radical vision of Elvis and and linking it to yeah, anti-segregationist stuff yeah. and and so forth but the the impulse there is interesting because it's it's like so all the people who are really complaining about this movie as being overly formulaic or leaning into formula but then the fact that they those same people seem to dislike that the movie does not condemn Elvis for his cultural appropriation or or you know yeah. make some kind of apology on no, but that's kind of the art. That's kind of the arguments they're making. But it's like, no, what you're actually identifying is that the movie is making you uncomfortable 
about the process of American show business, mm -hmm. but being extremely yes. forthright yes. and messy about the actual thing and showing that it's an exploitative process, right. and very a layered exploitative process. And so the fact that it's not giving you an easy out in the sense of being like, well, Elvis was just a nice guy who liked his black friends and therefore blah, blah, blah. That's all good. But it's also not saying like, well, Elvis is some kind of like manipulator who's deliberately ripping off these people. It's like, no, he has a genuine love for this. This is the stuff he grew up with. And yeah, he's also he literally grew up in his the neighborhood. Own, but he's them. also turning it into his own music. Yeah. Like the, there's, they're very deliberate about showing a performance of an artist and then he takes it and does it in a very, very different way with different emphasis. And it's, it's not that like, it's not a one-to-one -one of him no. just mimicking. There's so many different layers in this film in terms of the filmmaking, the storytelling, and what the actual like themes are doing. But it's very messy, but it's it's the themes and the layers are still there. And so I think the fact that it's actually like it's provocative in its use of that formula. So part of it's uh, like we said about this idea of like making you the audience, at least at the time, feel like they, you know, want to enjoy something they're not sure they should. That also comes into the racial politics, right? Like yeah, that's part yeah. of the appeal yeah. is like yeah. a white guy doing black music and black performance in a sense, right? It is this transgressive thing at the time. Yeah, right? the idea that his dancing yes. breaks the color barrier. Exactly. Right? Like that's that like and, and but then and the movie brings out the power, whether it's, you know, exaggerated or whatever. Like the, the scene uh, at the state ball stadium when he like waves his pinky finger, right? Like that it builds that up to this big moment. Yeah. But also it shows the push pull between business and art in that, again, whether this is an accurate depiction of the, the balance, but like, you know, Colonel Parker at a certain point is like, no, we got to tone it down. You got to be safe, make you, you know, palatable. Yeah. It's like, this is not Christmas. Um, but Elvis always wants to like push a little further, right? He's like, no, I'm going to do it this way. And, but, but ironically, that's what makes him a star, right? More yeah. than just another, you know, guy doing rockabilly. It's that he senses that people want that frisson, that like moment of like excitement that he, he can draw out of his real authentic experiences. And then I think the movie does a good job of that, whether, you know, in that balance between, again, Austin Butler and Tom Hanks playing, interplaying with each other. Elvis is always somewhat of an outsider, right? And the movie emphasizes that he's like, He's lonely. He feels like he's always separate from other people, right? He like he grows up in the black neighborhood, doesn't fully fit within that community. But then when he, you know when he makes the transition into sort of the more the you know the the white mainstream at the t at that time period, he also isn't feel fully fitting in, and he doesn't want to go along with all those norms. And like I think it emphasizes that, but then also makes him this like lonely individual who can also be then manipulated by people close to him. And I think Aaron, you're really right that like. The movie, I think the movie is very conscious about trying to walk the line of the ambiguity about about this whole show business. Like it, 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 it's not it's not just an indictment of American show business because it also is celebrating like the the genuine power of how this music can move people, um, how it can influence a mass of people. But you know, but it doesn't want it. But it really doesn't want us to be comfortable like with that and so it always wants to remind us that there's an exploitive side that there's a manipulative side to all of this like all of this music and it's activating things within you that are kind of on some level beyond like your control i think it's something that lerman has done in his like a lot of his films is what he does is this ability to re-inject some kind of like 
in his use of anachronism and hyperactive editing and stuff, and you can, you know, whether it's cliche or not, he's trying to re-inject some of the, uh, you know, emotion and excitement and novelty that various yes. works had. So whether it's, you know, the use of, like, hip-hop and things in the jazz age of, like, Great Gatsby, yep. right? Yep. Or um, trying to play the, the kids that, who invent hip-hop in uh, the get-down in, you know, the Bronx in the late 70s as kind of, like, superheroes kind of thing, you know? And, like, Grandmaster Flash is, like, this, like, mysterious figure. Yep, there's the a shadows, comic book right? aspect to yep. that, too. And then, but even back to, like, Romeo and Juliet, right? Um, and, and, and stuff, that, you know, we're going to jazz up or play up, you know, uh, Shakespeare as this, like, hyperactive MTV kind of thing. And I, I think Elvis does that pretty well. You're like, no, you're right. Like, Elvis is part of a tradition, for good or bad, of, you know, this, this history of the way that, you know, America discovers these new musical forms in black culture and makes them mainstream, right? Yep. And the excitement there. And, and that he does fit into a tradition with... Uh, you know, all kinds of people, whether when, you know, when Eminem said, it's like, I am the worst thing since Elvis Presley, you know, yeah. to take black music, make myself wealthy. It's like Eminem was kind of astute in the sense that he, he is also playing into that discomfort that we have with someone taking this art form and, yeah. and, and making it that way. So, and Lerman knows that, but he's going to also return some of the romanticism in, and the, the drama and the, the, the hyper reality of it. It's a show. It's a spectacle and a show. Spectacular, spectacular. Like, Aaron, I don't know if we want to talk about, like, you know, sort of more Lerman side of things, not just the performances, but, like... Yeah. Like, I'm intrigued the way he, like, you know, like, he, as you said, he's, like, he's, you know, it's operating as pastiche in some ways, but then it's also, like, right, like, he's trying to gather in everything possible into the film, and, like, so he it very consciously goes through, like, all the different ways that Elvis reaches his audience, right? Like, we get... There's an emphasis that, like, we hear, we as the audience hear Elvis on a recording, playing, uh, you know, on the radio played. And then, and then we see a performance at a small club. And then, and then we get um, TV. And then we get his movie phase. And then we get, uh, you know, Vegas stage show. And Lerman really also then, I think, like, the, the sta you know, the Vegas shows, like, the movie actually almost becomes, like, a, a musical at those points. And he shoots, a, like, a musical where you actually see, like, the whole, like, song. So I, it's interesting that he's, like, really, um, he's spending a lot of time on, like, showing all the different ways, all the different media that, like, Elvis uses to, like, reach people. And that's just, a, like, one way that it's sort of, like, trying to sort of be comprehensive, the way it's trying to tell the story of Elvis. Yeah, and, and the, the movie... Even the like pacing and the structure of it shifts depending on what it is like the mode and the the period that it's presenting. So that whole phase in um, Las Vegas, the pacing slows a lot, and the movie actually kind of drags in in a dramatic sense, narr like narratively. But it also that that's appropriate for Elvis literally being like trapped at that point, right? He's trapped in his cycles of addiction. He's trapped by Parker's dealings with the the hotel managers. And he's trapped by this sense of like he can't help himself but perform. Yeah. And so it's it's a it's a spiral in a sense, and in in a spiral you keep doing the same part right over and over when an actual like thing is going down the drain. But it, like this movie's long, and this movie's a lot. Like the um, I, I mentioned in the in the keynote the sensory overload, the fact that it's not just or not just sensory but like information overload too. It is throwing yeah. so much at you so fast and expecting 
you to pick it up or at least glean some kind of emotional response to it that you can carry through to the next moment or that you can compare to some later moment because he's the movie also is constantly tack, talking back and forth through yeah, the time yeah. through the idea of the rise and the fall because because Elvis is not really a human being in this movie <laughs> right like you yeah, said he's yeah. he's a superhero he's an icon he's an image he is a mythic figure in like a true <laughs> well true he sacrifices sense. himself for the audience whom he loves within this movie yeah that's why that final scene the final performance in vegas when he's, yeah and he's all you know fat and like sweating and just it is it actually earns a, a pathos and emotion that i wasn't expecting it to have at that point it i was earns kind of the like, cut to the real footage just to like back up a little bit with the terms of the characterizations and bring it into how lerman approaches this on like a on a, on a filmmaking level and also like a storytelling level before we bridge into this like did you find the movie long when you were watching it yeah yeah i did i watched it quite late at night it was like i started at 10 15 and finished oh, okay. at one, yeah, one in the yeah. morning but i actually wasn't didn't fall asleep at all like i was awake the whole time i definitely feel that like the vegas stuff felt like 50 percent of the movie whether that's accurate or not i'm not sure just because i was like oh my goodness this is going on but it actually his career too it, it like it kind of overwhelmed the earlier as the earlier what I find more interesting aspects of his career, and yet it, maybe it's appropriate that the movie spends its time with that because it weighed so heavily heavily on the the final vision of Elvis that society has in a lot of ways. So I like the only thing I'd say is like I found it to be like like I was probably more engaged with this than I have been with a movie in theaters for a while. Like you just feel like because I've seen a bunch of blockbusters. Like, I, love, I love Top Gun. <laughs> ambulance was good. I, I I actually thought Ambulance drags more the last act of Ambulance for me. But like I just I, I thought it was really long, but I didn't like I wasn't checking my clock. It was sort of like overwhelming. And then it was the kind of movie where like I almost forgot about like Doctor Strange by the next day, like what happened in it. Whereas like I was thinking about like this movie kind of like the whole week and like trying to figure it out. But you're like let's go on with Aaron. Like you were talking about the structure and stuff because I think there's interesting how like that first half hour like it's doing a lot. It's two things, basically, and it's it has to do with the Tom, the fact that Colonel Parker is your narrator. Colonel Parker is the character that we get the internal monologue for. You know, I'm, I have a weird, like, ambivalence towards Hank's performance because I find it hilarious and fascinating, but I also think <laughs> it's kind of bad. But it's also, like, I'm not sure if the movie would work if the character wasn't presented in this way. And the things that the movie does, even the one things that I don't think are necessarily, like, great... Are very interesting so like th so that's my kind of take on the movie in whole like i think it's it's a good movie it's a very very interesting movie it's by no means like a great movie i don't think but i would watch it again because there's so much to unpack in it but so we take tom parker right and the movie presents him and it's very upfront that you're getting his internal thoughts and you're getting his kind of unreliable narration of this yeah and the filmmaking allows you to glimpse his memories almost and his his so when we're witnessing Elvis's past, the Elvis's past is never presented as a Elvis memory. It's presented as a Tom Parker version of that past, right? Like we never see inside Elvis's head in this movie. We never act. Elvis is almost like isolated, not only in the frame in the film. He's like isolated from us as like the audience. So what are we what are we getting when you get like? Well, you get the you get the memory flashback stuff, but it's always you know what I mean. Like ultimately, it's nested within the movie. Does not really present. Elvis as the like 
you're getting a glimpse into his reality. You're not yeah. actually. You're yeah. getting presented Elvis as like the superstar icon, even in the private moments. Yeah. You're getting the myth in the private moments, which is actually what I think butler's so good at doing is that butler is like he does the near impossible which is that he makes you believe the appeal of this figure at all stages of the journey mm-hmm. when uh, as you said elvis has become a bit of a joke elvis is kind of this elvis is a word and a definition and a every like you know it's it, he's so ingrained in the pop culture he's not a human anymore and the movie doesn't try and re bring the humanity back to him it's more of interested in digging out what that actually like that approach of elvis as a pop icon means to us as a culture in all these different facets but look like so what i'm saying is that by making tom parker the narrator the movie always keeps us as the presentation of the story on a oppositional plane to Elvis, but also the filmmaking does that too. The amount of shots in this movie in which Elvis is isolated or he's a single frame image, like even, even think of the um, the studio special that they're like doing, the right? Christmas, the black leather. The Christmas yeah. special. The amount of shots in that in which there's a huge amount of activity going on and it's always cutting to a reverse shot of Elvis like alone against the wall with the lights behind him or like he's on the stage by himself he's yeah. somehow thinking about like there could be a there could be a, a plane difference there like he's on the he's lower down they're higher in the frame it's just it, it, the amount of stuff that Lerman is doing there to try and make it very clear that we are not on Elvis's plane we are on the Parker side of the exploiters and yet I think that Butler's performance in Lerman's filmmaking does return some of the humanity to Elvis without trying to make him normal. Like, in the end, you are like, you could kind of try to understand who he was to an extent, at least on the surface level. Not necessarily his most deepest internal feelings, but you get a sense of his, like, deep anxiety about his father, you know, having gone to prison for not having money, about his, you know, disappointing his mother about his, you know, relationships with women. All these things, you get a sense of that humanity. You never, like, Butler's performance to me does the impossible in that he's always Elvis the icon. He's always larger than life and more, you know, amazing than life. And yet he is a guy. And I'm like, I actually felt sorry for him at the end. I was like, you know. Yeah, totally. No, but like it, but it keep, but it keeps those as glimpses. You're, you're sorry for him, but though not for his mundanity, but for his like, the fact that he's special he's extraordinary he's extraordinary even in the in the like domestic sphere stuff like it's a very strange story <laughs> you feel sorry for him like you feel sorry for superman but you feel well yeah yeah, yeah in the like, sense that you're like i can never really understand who you are because you are better than everybody else and yet you're alone you're isolated you know the people you love will one day die and move on and you're this icon frozen in time i don't mean that butler or lerman are presenting elvis as some like non-recognizable human being there's emotions there and there's feelings and the movie sweeps sweeps you up in it is what i'm saying is that i think it gets to that by leaning really really hard into the like the iconic mythic yes, approach yes. of yeah, Elvis. and and it's it, but that so this is the contradiction thing here right this is the messy spot which is that despite all the exploitation and the commodification of this type of art the art ultimately leads you back to a genuine human emotional place which is why it's so weird about Hollywood do. and show business and movies and everything, right? Yeah. You, you still end up with something that's like human in the end, even though it's completely manufactured. Yeah, like isn't there isn't there something weirdly both human, but also like like fake and transactional and bizarre about like his kissing of like women in the audience in like Vegas yeah. like after the shows? 
Like, like it actually seems to, like the way, at least in the movie, right? Like the way it's played is like he's actually having like a like a moment of connection with these other people, such to the extent that his wife is like bothered by this. But it's also like this like gimmick he does at the end of the show, like, and it's like it's, it's that cheesy both, at the same time. Yeah, yeah it's, it's cheesy and it's like and it's real and but I I think um I think you're like both right because like the movie does show that there's a human side to Elvis, but we glimpse his psychological life always from the outside so we 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 get a sense of like his relationship with women and how his mother shapes that and his sense of like how his father's relationship shapes but it's it's very much not like a psychological biopic where like you know it's not a movie that's trying to ground our understanding of elvis in certain like um psychological dimensions or like certain relationships and childhood stuff but it is giving us these different clues at different times that there's like there's something more. He's not just like this paper shell mm-hmm. of a person. Like there's there is something there. There is something human. But it's also that sense of like the movie captures that sense that you just you get a sense of when you read some of the like celebrity stuff in the news where you're just like this like feeling of like when your like selfhood gets beyond yourself and you cannot control it anymore. Like there's like this sense of like you feel bad for him. Pe- even though he's like, you know, like, well, he has a lot of success as we, in, in material terms, but you're like, but like, he's so out of control, even though he's at the, so, the supposed top, but like, he has no control of like this thing that you create, right? Like you create this, like the Elvis, the, the icon, the show, and it, it creates a life of itself that's like beyond and like, and slowly like it, like there's, and this gets back into like, um, a star is born all the way back to the 1930s one where it's like there's like this sense that like the machine like the show business machine just chews people up and spits them out and like elvis is just such a like i like how the movie just leans into that as being like like he's doomed he's like almost faded to this like the way the movie begins you know um like he's doomed that he's gonna like have this sort of tragic end but he's like trapped and he'll but he makes the choice to go into it when he like you know on the on the ferris wheel it's fate like that. in a true in like almost greek sense like yeah like it's a little bit of that like you know he has the a tragic flaw that leads to this i enjoyed also seeing a few of uh the Baz, little Baz Luhrmann things like uh thought it was fun to see richard roxburgh as his father <laughs> but who's in a lot of other Luhrmann films as well did you catch the uh the cameo of David Wenham as the country singer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then Cody Smith Far McPhee Mirror. is the yeah. young guy who wants yeah, to like. Cody, he's the. He the, wants to copy him. Yeah. That's great. Jimmy Rogers, like Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers, right? One thing, like it, this, might sound a ridiculous point of comparison. People will say, but like I thought, like one reference point for me for like the first half hour of the movie, but maybe even the whole thing is like it reminds me of a Citizen Kane type story because it's also like you never, you're never getting like the actual man's story you're getting the story of the man as told by the people yeah who knew him Kane, specifically Kane here example of how you get the humanity of Cain and you never ever get Cain's you never meet him yes yeah. you, you never, never meet, meet you never meet Cain you make the people who knew Cain yeah, exactly and but but also for the complexity of narration because I think Aaron like you're you're right in that this movie is surprisingly like you don't walk away being like what happened like you're not confused but I was trying to think about how he actually tells the story. Just like, you know, with Citizen Kane, where you're like, you can never quite map it out in your mind of like how the story, like whose story is this here? We're going to like a flashback within a flashback. Um, like the first, especially within the first half hour of this, you're like, it's really hard to like, 
pinpoint like what level you're like on the narration you're on because there's points in it where it's like it's his stage show like his first performance and then all of a sudden we're like we're kind of back in a flashback but it's almost like a flashback within that flashback when he's like going into like the shack and stuff like there's yeah i just i just find it like there's it's actually very complex i think and but he but it's handled skillfully because we don't think about it too much it's not complex and confusing but he's pulling all those different associations together. Lerman has very complicated editing patterns that are that are extremely comprehensible, and they're not actually, um, you know, it's it's not a kind of like shock and awe approach that yeah. a lot of people I think sometimes label it as. It's like no, he's there's something very emotionally comprehensible, and 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 you know, I don't want to, I don't know enough about like I haven't read enough Eisenstein to really dig into this stuff, but I think there is something there about he's he is creating a actual like cinematic ideology through his his editorial associations yeah. and it's and he's yeah. playing into some primal thing that is extremely comprehensible for an audience member. within this movie he uses the image of the international hotel mm-hmm. in vegas repeatedly and we often zoom into it and stuff and he'll have a swooping shot that goes and up the and like, shows that arc and like these things like they become like iconography within the movie like they start to signify and, and lerman's been good at that through all his films. I think that's actually one of his skills. He's really good at using that kind of, those editing patterns and things, but maintaining really comprehensible things. And I also and just think an example that of that, he, like he works, Romeo and Juliet, he has um, the two towers. For, right? He gives the Montague, like, big skyscraper and the Capulet skyscraper, and then he'll go back to those images just to, like, show you, oh, like, this is the rivalry, they're powerful, and it signifies all or that. Or in Moulin Rouge, so. this, the, the, you have the this spiral movements and then moving into the 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 mill or into the elephant and into that stuff like so he likes to use architecture and things there's actually lerman in and it's interesting he always works with his i believe Catherine martin yeah his wife wife, who's the production designer and costume designer and all these oh really oh and producer like they're kind of a a, you know, a power team. Okay, sort of like, yeah, like Nolan, Nolan, and... Uh, but she, like, you know, is involved in the actual creative material aspect of the filmmaking with him, and that's why all she his films... She won a few Oscars. Yeah, and she right? should probably, honestly, win costumes again. And that's why one. his films, they, they, like, the, the design is so solid, and, like, the costumes are such an integral part of it. Like, there's that one shot where, like, I was like, and also you're getting a biopic, right? A musical biopic where we get shots where it's, like, a swooping camera moves in onto the guitar, rotates upside down. Halfway through that rotation, it cuts to a, the different scene, different guitar, comes round right side up, and then like zooms out. And you're like, that's just like that's an amazing transition shot. Like, yeah. So this this idea that Elvis is a conventional, and by conventional meaning disposable musical biopic is like absolute foolishness <laughs> yes yes it's plain with all the conventions he's remixing them. pay no mind if you read a, a critical take that is just dismissing this movie as like mediocre just pay no mind because that person does not know what they're talking right. about if they hate it that's understandable but <laughs> yeah, they have to admit that it's like... sui generis in the, or it's very much i shouldn't say sui generis it's a lerman film through and through there's a lot of people saying a lot of things but in the end you gotta listen to yourself In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed, and Elvis the god was born. I'm gonna show you what the real Elvis is like tonight! You're looking for trouble? You came to the right place. You're looking for trouble? Just look right in my face. 
I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green Elvis is currently playing in theaters. So from discussing Elvis in particular, it seems like a natural jumping off point to consider the musical biopic genre more broadly. So ever since the release of Walk Hard in 2006, the genre seems to have become derided by the critical community. It's almost like that movie exposed the fault lines in the formula, right? Even though actors keep winning awards for parts they play in musical biopics, such as the aforementioned Malick, and musical biopic films continue to be hits at the box office, including this one. So let's look at Elvis in light of the broader musical biopic genre. What is the state of this genre? How does this film play into that state? And like, where do you think it is there room going forward in it? Anton, so what do, what do you think? This is a little bit like a half-baked theory of the, the genre, but like I kind of feel like within the 21st century, we kind of had two waves of it. And we're, Elvis is coming like at a high crest of the second wave. The first wave, right, like the two big ones were Ray and uh, Walk the Line. And I was working at a music store at the time when those came out. And like we, what, we forget about one of the big aspects of like these musical biopics is that it also causes a huge resurgence in like the popularity of the music. Um, so like Johnny Cash became huge for all people who hadn't been listening to Johnny Cash. The, the timing also coincided with the American records. Those releases, yeah. And so, and then, the, you know, but then the, it became like such a thing that like it, right at the Academy Awards, you'd be like, well, what's the musical biopic that's going to sort of like be the big one this year? <laughs> and that would be sort of in the Oscar race. And, you know, and then you're, I think you're really right that like Walk Hard just kind of like, like I haven't actually seen it, but like even from the trailers, it was just like such a skewering of like Walk the Line and stuff. It is, that, like, and yet it's kind of an affectionate skewering. And I think I'm the only one who's seen it. And so it's a more effect, it's not like, it's not it, but it gets it's it, it, it just gets them so well. Yeah. It doesn't need to be mean. It just is like we're just going to do the same thing, but with John C. Riley being really silly, and you'll see how foolish it all is. Like the, there's the great line at the beginning of the movie where, you know, he's sitting by the edge of the stage, ready to go on, kind of like Cash at the you know Planet San Quentin, and the, someone's like, Mr. Cox, Mr. Cox, give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. It's not even that it's like so skewering, it's just that it's so close to home, you're like, ooh, it's uncomfortably on the nose. So a as a parody of these, or a farce of them, it it exposed the conventions that, that um, drove them. And right, so like Walk the Line has that, like, that whole idea of like, we're gonna frame the movie around, right, Folsom Prison. Yeah, the Folsom. concert there. The I think it's Folsom. I can't. Maybe it's. Yeah, Sam I think you're right. Quentin. No, it's. I, I think can't. it's. I think it's the Folsom. Those ones had that. Those always that sort of like gimmick or that convention that would shape the movie. You know, they sort of go away a little bit, and then we've had like um, so Rocket Man, Bohemian Rhapsody, A Star Is Born, the new one with Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga. I think that fits in with the genre, and then sort of Elvis comes, and I think if you think about the way that Walk the Line has to structure its narrative, what we see with Elvis is that. Um, and I actually haven't seen a lot of these recent ones, but like it does some of those things, but it does them in so many different ways that it's like, you know, it's, it's what we sort of said. Like people will be like, oh, like this is conventional because it has Elvis like before a big performance thinking back. Yeah, but it does that multiple times and then it has maybe two or three layers of flashback. So it's like it's taking these conventions and operating on a much more complex, sophisticated level. That's sort of my view of how it's engaging with the genre. And I, th I think it like, it's a remix. 
it's um it, it's the way he even approaches his adaptations right like i think i love his romeo and juliet adaptation i love his great gatsby adaptation they're not what we often call like pure you know um fidelity you know primary adaptations but they understand like an aspect within that and they draw it out by bringing in new flavors and sort of this remix quality to me is like what he brings to this genre with Elvis. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually think the your comparisons you've made to Star is Born are probably the most apt for this one, not just because of the narrative of Elvis's life, but also I've been thinking about, the, you said the musical, these musical biopics are big hits, right? Like Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the biggest uh, nons. Or the, genre. the big ones are very big. Yeah, right? They're very big. They make a lot of money. And, but also people bemoan the sort of the death of the musical, the sort of straight uh, musical in the sense of like a West Side Story or something like that we had last year, right? We are having this sort of, people still like music in movies. Music is a big part of people's lives. People aren't necessarily, you know, willing to, to buy into, you know, a sort of, the, the traditional like musical where people break a song, but will buy into a, a movie about a musician because then the music seems normal, right? So films like A Star Is Born and Elvis allow people to enjoy all the you know excesses of a musical while grounding it in that sort of uh, moment or th- the historical figure of the performer in a lot of ways, whether they're real or, or fictional, right? In that way. So you even have things like, uh, you know, Straight Outta Compton and things like that, right? They, they kind of allow us to enjoy yes, that, that the music. Yes, that should be another good example. That was a big yeah, hit too. Yeah, allow us to enjoy this music that we know and recognize, which is something that Lerman often does. Like, uh, Moulin Rouge is like Singing in the Rain and other old musicals. It's a, it's a jukebox musical. It takes existing songs and combines them together, uh, right? not very many original songs in this way so Lerman's well suited to that because he does that and he literally remixes some of the songs for the soundtracks or he, uh, he has artists do that you know so are you saying that we should think of we should think of Elvis as a musical biopic but also as a, a musical as a musical I think I think more in a lot of ways it is yeah yeah and, and I think you're right in that the musical genre itself right like I mean it's the Golden Globes and so we don't give it too much seriousness but right like Things like Walk the Line, stuff like that, they were nominated for Best Comedy or Musical. Um, so, like, in some sense, the musical genre itself has been dominated by these, like, musical biopics since, like, you know, the mid-2000s. So, 2018 is the year that you that you get the second wave resurgence because you get, like, Straight Outta Compton was, uh, before that, the Get Back, um, Lerman's, so get Lerman down. directed the, pi- sorry, the Get, yeah, not Get Back. Not uh, the Beatles, the, yeah. Not the Beatles. Yeah. Too similar. The yeah, Get Down. Yeah was yep. 2016, Lerman directed the pilot, which was far better than the rest of the show. There was that, I think Compton was 2016 as well? 2015. Which was also a big hit. And then 2018, because you had the, the, the combination of Bohemian Rhapsody and A Star is Born, and they like were big deals at like the Oscars and stuff that year. And, but like, you know, so I think we're at a stage where like those were sort of like the hugest hits, but Elvis is then starting to like play with this second wave and actually and a movie that a not I don't know it, it was a big hit obviously at the the Oscars because uh, it won the supporting actress, but a film that actually I think is I didn't see it until later that maybe fits into the biopic musical straight up because it is a musical fictionalized version of Diana Ross, uh, which is Dreamgirls, is also one that sort of fits in and reminds me a lot of this in some ways in its sort of fictionalized treatment of the, you know, Diana Ross and Motown. What year was Dreamgirls? 2008. 2006. So that was like, that's, okay. that's first wave. Yeah. It's the tail end of the first wave there. Because yeah. then there's also, we, we have gotten some interesting, like, because do you count something as like a, 
an outlier in it, like something like Whiplash. Yeah, maybe. I don't like know. On some not sense, seen, it's, like a, but... it's not bio. I guess it's not bio. No, but something like Love and Mercy is an outlier. You're right. Love and Mercy is actually. Yeah. I thought I, I love like that Love movie and Mercy. A lot. So yeah. that's the. So Brian Wilson. Um, yeah. So that Love and Mercy is a perfect example of a movie that um, succeeds through truly bringing you inside the head of the the musician you're right it's not interested in the beach boys iconography no in the show business side it's an so actually this is interesting so star is born is the star is born is the like intersection of like these musical biopics where it's like are we focusing on the art the music art or are we focusing on the show business side and right that's the central tension in or one of the central tensions in the star is born right like the whole idea of between sort of like the show business and like Sort of like the artist, the art. But like, you're right. Love and Mercy is totally, it's interested in sort of like the way it gets into the sessions of recording like Pets yeah, that's, and stuff. Those are some it, of the best it, parts it, of the movie. It's, it's painting Brian Wilson the way you like would have like a, you know, like a Van Gogh biopic or something, right? He's talking about him as an artist, not as like a showman. But you get to Elvis see the, the details. Is interestedly of, like, in the not studio. as interested in like the music side, right? The art side. It's not saying that Elvis wasn't like artistically talented. But it's more interested in like this like carnival show business aspect, I think. And why do you th- why do you think musical biopics are so popular still? I think I think we under like it's 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 because people are familiar with these artists. They're familiar with the music, and and it's speaking to a story that they're being told again and again and again in their lives. And what do they also do? They they function kind of the way that Elvis's Las Vegas show did. It, it, like it's the point of like it's it's a catharsis, and it's also like a a, a re entry point to like that artist works. These come out, and if they're big, it's like everyone's like, "Oh, now we're now we're listening to Queen again." I forgot how great Queen was, you know. Like now, I want to go buy um, Elton John's greatest hits. Like nobody actually liked Bohemian Rhapsody's movie because it's it as a movie is beside the point. It was just a means of people to go and be like, "Oh man, I love Queen," and I'll watch a fifteen minute um, version of the Live Aid concert. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's it's that kind of stuff. And the interesting the thing that makes Elvis interesting is that it it puts that understanding into the film itself. I find the yes. whole phenomenon yeah. of the Vegas performances to be fascinating. It's like, it seems to be that they're at the end of their career and yet they can make huge amounts of money and potentially more people see them in these sort of Vegas shows, whether it was Cher or Britney Spears. Or but but Britney's a good Celine example. Dion, like, yeah. I don't follow, like I haven't really watched like, you know, like the documentaries and stuff, but my wife was telling me about like how, you know, like Britney basically was going through like very similar to like Elvis and that like exploitation by the people around her through the Vegas show, being forced to, like, perform essentially night after night. Like, you're right. There's the one point the guy who, the guy who like, owns the International Hotel calls him, like, your sideshow. You know, Elvis isn't even a person. He's just, like, your, he's just your, your gimmick. You're, like, your show. Your geek. Yeah. So in some ways, this movie is that it's actually, like, the comment on the genre itself, which is, again, what makes this movie more interesting than, like, again, it's, it's conventional because it's, it has to use those conventions to comment upon the the genre itself. And as I said in the keynote, Elvis's story is the template for every musician's story. Yeah. If you want, it's the compressed. It's twenty years rise. It's meteoric rise, tragic end. That's basically what every superstar ever is playing into. Yeah. It's interesting that well, Elvis is the first, you know the archetypal one in the American context. You know, I do think that. There's a certain way that uh, these things have happened in the past. People talk about, you know, was it Franz Liszt in the, you know, early 19th century literally had Listomania. People were like going crazy, right? But the um, and then I think of the, the one of the all-time biggest Oscar ones is uh, the adaptation of the play Amadeus, right? And making Mozart into the archetypal 
uh, sort of. Well, there's star. a musical, but there's one of the great musical biopics, and it also makes um, Mozart a little bit more accessible by like right, like it sort of does some things where it's like Mozart has like a little bit pink in his wig to sort of make him a little bit punkish. There's little things he was doing, small level anachronisms. Tom to Hulse kind of is a, has a great performance. That's a I, I rewatched that bring in five like years. It's, it's a great film actually. Oh. Amadeus is is amazing. One of the no, but see that's one of the things with Elvis though is like this movie understands that the difference between Elvis and a Liszt or a Mozart, or any of those earlier artists that people are freaking out about is that it's the fact that he is a industry. Mm-hmm. He's yes. not just an artist because it's the the big. We like, put this face on the pillow. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, it's that like, every like, product. It, so Colonel Parker's the original George Lucas, like merchandising. <laughs> But it's also the it's in this the mass right like because radio and TV can get everywhere yeah because radio TV like we can do things you it's can only reach after everyone the, the television world. though becomes right the thing too right yeah but you know like so Mozart was like famous but not everybody um, would have known. The, but you people know, wouldn't know what he looks like music going around they wouldn't know what he looks like the iconography doesn't go the I, the man does not become an icon the same way because you don't the music have does the mass media. But the music does. It takes until the 1920s before you even get an artist recording their own work, like Rachmaninoff, who I think was like the first who actually recorded his own pieces, playing them. Because recording makes music a commodity in a different way. Yes. And then you have, actually, I was just thinking of the other, by um, uh, ESPF, things like people like that. Right? Mm, yeah, yeah, you're right. And that would be, I think, first way, is that first way? That's like 2008, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, just the audience, I'm really kind of just making up my whole first wave, second wave of these genres, but I think, <laughs> it just I think never there's goes something away, to actually. it. No, but that's the thing, it's actually a constant, and, and again, my, my mother comment about I think a lot of people, you know, people who aren't cinephiles, and I don't mean this as a derisive thing, it's nothing wrong with this, but like a lot of people, the enjoyment of a movie is connected to the music in a movie. There's a reason why Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. or Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson are so popular with, with people who don't watch a ton of movies, but they understand them as like, this is like one of the, you know, the important directors I really like. It's because, oh, it's, that soundtrack to Kill Bill's like unbelievable or that soundtrack to uh, Boogie Nights, right? Like it's, it's, it's the fact that it reminds you of the culture that, and it's putting you in the time and the place and the references. And it, it's, I think we undervalue how much music is like transportative for people emotionally yeah. and, and like narratively it tells the stories that it's their totally. day in and day out. And so something like Elvis is that like, it's the, you know, the Uber story, <laughs> like the Ur story for all this stuff. If you've liked our roundtable discussion, please rate and review and share with your family and friends. Also, let us know your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks for listening, and catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>